staying with the ghostly theme. Charles Dickens is a Christmas carol, of course, a staple of the entertainment calendar at this time of the year. But actor and writer Paul Nugent gives it another twist in his play, Orson Welles' Christmas Carol. It's a retelling of the classic as a radio play within a play. Comedy based on a true story from 1938 when Orson Welles and his Mercury Theatre Company were uh, preparing to present Welles' version of Christmas Carol live on national radio in New York. Lionel Barrymore was due to play Scrooge, but he came down with pneumonia and Orson Welles was forced... (laughs) <laughs> to step in himself at the last minute. Paul Nugent is with me in studio and I, I laugh at the idea, Paul, of Orson Welles being forced to step in. I'd say he was pushing his way up to the microphone. He liked to, he liked to be at the mic, didn't he? Oh, he, he felt like he could play all the parts anyway every, in every production. So I think he was he would have been dying to jump in. The other actors were accessories if need be, you know. Yeah. So what, what, you're, what you have here is kind of that story being told mm. and also a, a reenactment of the Wells version, the radio version, yeah. which people would see on the stage in front of you. Where did the idea to kind of look at Christmas Carol in this way? Where did it come from? Well, for we, you? we were we were um, living in New York at the time, and so we had seen a few different kinds of live radio plays, and thought oh, this is a great form. Mm. But we thought, I wonder what would happen if we could do a kind of a play set in that radio studio, and so we can also see the action around the radio play. Um, and then we started going, well, where's, who's the best person to explore this the radio with? And we thought, of course, of Orson Welles and his famous production of War of the Worlds. And then just in our research, we came across this um, production of A Christmas Carol, which only happened a few weeks after the War of the Worlds. So the whole of the world was really watching Yeah, what's him. he going to do here? And yeah, this, this time when uh, Lionel Barrymore, who had been playing Scrooge for a number of years, it was the nation's expectation that he mm-hmm. would play Scrooge coming up to Christmas. And yet he got sick. And instead of cancelling or, or doing a rerun, Orson decided the best thing to do at the last minute was that he should play Scrooge <laughs> and narrate and recast all the other parts. Are you sure that <laughs> Lionel Barrymore getting pneumonia was purely accidental? <laughs> You'd wonder, wouldn't you? I wouldn't put it past Orson. <laughs> no, no, it's at all. Let's have a listen to a little bit of the original 1938 production. It's extraordinary just to hear this. Or- Orson Welles in action here is Ebenezer Scrooge. Uh, the original 1938 drama at CBS in New York. Hiram Sherman is Bob Cratchit and Joseph Cotton as Scrooge's nephew, Fred. Close the door, Cratchit. Shut out that infernal noise. Yes, Mr. Scrooge. Confound that impudence. Okay, Cratchit. Yes, Mr. Scrooge. You ought to stop at Father Guild on your way home tonight and collect that 17 shillings and sixpence he owed me since Michaelmas and tell him I shall have the constable over here if he doesn't pay it once. Well, sir, Mr. Father Guild's wife is... What do I care about his wife? I want my 17 and six. I I just thought it being Christmas... Christmas, Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, Bob. Oh, Mr. Fred. Well, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you, Uncle. Uh, there must be a bad humbug on the way very soon there. <laughs> That's it. Orson Welles in action as Ebenezer Scrooge. Hiram Sherman as Bob Cratchit. Joseph Cotton as Scrooge as Nephew Fred. And that's all part of the Orson Welles original production from 1938 and his his Mercury group. Um, and with me in studio is Paul Nugent, who's kind of taken that play and is working a new story around it. But that, that we've got to remember, this was done live on radio. It wasn't, you know, pre-recorded and done mm. over a couple of days and rehearsed. No, no, up they got and they did it. Yeah, no, completely live and, and once a week. You know, Orson was adapting a book a week uh, and then putting it on, yeah, live on, on Sunday night for, you know, 
huge audiences mm. and it was all completely live. And I think there was, wasn't there a live audience present for some of them as yeah, well? Yeah, sometimes so, they'd have a live audience too, yeah. Mm. So it was a, a real performance. Yes, of course, yeah. they were holding the scripts and yeah. that, that's part of the fun yeah. for, for the audience, I suppose, seeing that and seeing mm. how the sound effects and things like that are happening. Mm. So you start your play with the story of the disaster of Orson uh, yeah. having to... Then how, how does it move from there? Well, basically, we come in really only a few minutes before the broadcast is going to go on. And so we see Orson uh, making the final decision uh, to to decide how he's going to deal with this problem is that he's going to play Scrooge. Mm. And his his cast have been rehearsing for days, like long days and nights. They're, they're singing Christmas carols thinking, oh, everything's going to be fine. And then Orson springs the news on them, which causes mutiny and... Uh, terror they're suddenly being cast in new parts they're suddenly having parts taken away from them that they thought they were going to play and, uh, and Orson's in terrible foul humour um, and then we just lead right up from that backstage drama to going 3-2-1 on air and seeing how they cope with uh, doing the live radio play with these last minute changes And how did you go about casting the part of Orson Welles Paul? Well you know we went through a long audition process of seeing many 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 Orson Welles impersonators uh, but then they all had pneumonia so I played the part Oh, so there's a touch of the Orson Welles within the man sitting opposite me as well, is there? I, I, I think on some of my better days, I think I'm like the good Orson, but unfortunately on my worst days, like the bad You're Orson. Like the bad Orson as well. So you, you, you then reenact this radio version, this live radio version yeah. uh, of the play in front of the audience. And I guess there's a lot of visual comedy as well as everything else in the midst of that section. Yeah, I think what's really fun is that you get to see what happens in the background. I think if you were just listening to it, it should sound like the perfect version of, course. of the radio play. But there's so much visual humour to be seen in the background of people, you know, uh, getting distracted. The actors suddenly realising, oh, I'm playing this part. I should be over here. Mm. And um, Orson suddenly uh, trying to get the uh, his sound effects person, Benny, who's trying to do bells and chains and all these things. And she's not doing the way he wants. And so he's he's glaring at her, but he can't say anything. So there's lots of fun in the background. All right. So let's have a listen. So this is from your own production. Now yes. we're going to listen to a clip. Lizzie Morrissey is the ghost of Christmas past. And she's taking uh, Ebenezer Scrooge, played by yourself, back to his youth and another very different time. <laughs> do you know this place, Ebenezer Scrooge? Know it? know it. This is the counting house where I was apprenticed. It's my old master Fezziwig hosting one of his Christmas parties. Yo ho, my boys and girls. No more work tonight. Christmas Eve, Ebenezer. Dick Wilkins, let's have lots of room here for the fiddler. Come now, pick your partners. Come on, Ebenezer. Help me move these desks. Listen to him. <laughs> Plenty of mince pies and beer for all. Come along, Mrs. Fezziwig. <laughs> Recognize him? Yes, yes, yes. Merciful heaven! How happy I was then! (laughs) My time grows short. There we go. Lizzie Morrissey as the ghost of Christmas past and Ebenezer Scrooge, Scrooge played by Paul Nugent in that version of Paul Nugent's retelling of of the, of the play, which is called Orson Welles' Christmas Carol. Uh, but I, I suppose what you get from that, even as you listen to it, Paul, 
uh, you know, it's such a wonderful story in that, you know, you see the horrible Scrooge guy and then he's brought back to that Christmas past and you see this really soft guy that just went off the rails. What did it to him? Like the, that, has he, you see the young Scrooge with his, his then fiance and how mm. that fell apart. And Dickens is just a master. Like, you know, we went back to the original um, Christmas Carol when we were putting together the script. Just And he is brilliant about how he just creates this story so shortly, so simply, that makes us have this character we, at the start, we hate, we despise, mm. think he's awful. But we see why he's like what he's like. We see him change and all just so quickly and so so beautifully. You know, it, it's really moving. And one of the things that you're doing with the production as well, it, it can be a real Christmas night out because it's in that run up to the to the mm. season. There's kind of, there's a, a dinner option on certain nights as well. Yeah. Um, on Thursday, Friday and Saturday evenings in the run of the show, there's a dinner option uh, at Smock Alley where you can get a ticket mm. and you can have a lovely three course dinner up in the uh, gorgeous banquet hall uh, in the upper area of Smock Alley before the show. So your ticket yeah. includes dinner and a show and... And is that something that About Face, your, your company, About Face Theatre Company, do you do that type of dinner part, a dinner theatre thing regularly or is it normally just straightforward plays that you're putting on? It's normally straightforward plays. This is the first time we've done this. This is kind of in conjunction with the theatre. It was something that they wanted to try mm. and felt it might really work for Christmas. But I think it could be something that could work in the future, you know, the whole yeah. combination. Yeah. And, and what parts are you planning on playing in the future? Well, you know, we're going to do again many, many auditions, but I, <laughs> I do feel I have one contender who I really like. <laughs> yeah, you're going to use him again, I'm guessing. But Thanks for coming in us to and telling us about it this evening, Paul. That's Paul Nugent, Ed, Nugent and his play Orson Welles' Christmas Carol runs at Smock Alley Theatre from the 6th through until the 17th of December with those various nights when dinner is available. You can find out full details on smockalley.com. You're listening to Thursday Night's Arena. Big gig happening at the Three Arena tonight, particularly for fans of the most influential and successful bands to arise from the post-punk movement of the late 1970s. The Cure are in Dublin with their Lost World Tour. Eamon Sweeney stopped by on his way to the gig to whet our appetite and his and to listen to tracks like this. Drip, 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 drip. And so it goes on. Frontman Robert Smith and his ever-shifting cast of players, of course, making up the cure. Uh, alternative sound that they gave us to the sometimes sterile 1980s sound that was there at the time. And they morphed from goth to pop to psychedelia and probably lots of things in between. They have released 13 studio albums, would you believe? Over 30 singles and they have sold over 30 million albums worldwide. And as I said, they take to the stage of the Three Arena this evening. And judging by the way you were playing air drums during that track, <laughs> Eamon Sweeney, I'm guessing you are a big fan of this band. Oh, yes. They really were one of the first, the first alternative touchstones. Um, like the first record I bought or acquired would have been the Ghostbusters soundtrack, Ray Parker Jr. <laughs> Who are you going to call and going to the movie as a kid and singing along with that? Early other stuff would have included, uh, uh-huh, but when things got a bit more rock and roll and alternative, it was you 2 and The Cure that kind of brought me there. So it was, this is kind of your, your first grown-up music then? 
Is that what yeah, you could say about? that. Yeah. Some yeah. might argue that The Cure is not particularly grown-up yeah. music, but absolutely. Well, in terms of rock music, yeah, The Unforgettable Fire, um, that album, and The Cure compilation, Standing on a Beach, the singles, yeah. were instrumental in f- shaping my musical tastes. Yeah, and, and you actually would say, in, in, because we're talking this in our kind of where to begin occasion, as sure. series, you would say that is the place to start oh, that yeah. compilation. without a yeah. doubt. Now, there is, and I'll come to kind yeah. of that, the Holy Trinity, but that, that is, is a really good starting, really good starting point. Yeah. However, I started this evening with 10.15 on uh, Saturday night. That is that is early cure. That is what they were doing, kind of late seventies, heading into the yeah. into the early eighties from a from a double album, in fact, called Three Imaginary Boys. Yeah, isn't it? absolutely. Well, I suppose one thing we you know we all the recognisable thing is the got stuff and the MTV videos for Lullaby and mm. Robert Smith's hair and the makeup and all. That, Although he that hates that goth thing, doesn't he? He's not. He's he not fond of being told. Don't mention about the war. All. Yeah, but this the kind of the prototype cure is very interesting because what you hear there and that rawness, that kind of like mm. feral like quality that is for me. You know, it's acts like Gang of Four and Magazine and Joy Division, that raw post punk. Uh, sound that's what really interesting from 1980 onwards that's when it gets really interesting and there's three albums that really I think change the face of music but if if Robert Smith gets annoyed at the whole mention even of the word goth mm-hmm. maybe it's more that the, this idea that somehow they were linking into something they kind of they almost created that yeah. you could say yeah. couldn't yeah. you absolutely as the late cultural critic Mark Fisher said you cannot talk about goth without talking about the cure you know, their influence is ever in it. What I would imagine where Smith is coming from is very similar to where, where Nick Cave is coming from because the birthday party were also credited as one of those prototype mm. goth bands. And Nick Cave was disgusted um, with the word goth and everything that came with it because he pointed out it also encompassed what he thought were awful bands like The Mission. And I'd say Smith would be coming from a very similar place. You also got to remember, Robert Smith came out at a time when the music press was very spiky. When you had characters like Morrissey and Marky Smith and Ian McCullough from Echo and the Bunnyman. So back when he used to do loads of interviews and now he does hardly any and God knows I've tried enough times, um, he badmouthed or slagged off pretty much everybody including especially other bands that were deemed to be goth. All right, so the, the, the track that we just heard, 10.15 Saturday Night, from the album Three Imaginary Boys is kind of the early cure, right? yeah. If, yeah. if you like. When we move in, when things start to come into the 1980s, they kind of were the alternative sound to what many people would have said was a quite boring soundtrack uh, uh, during the 1980s. And we get that in the album 17 Seconds and the second track that you're suggesting we have a listen to, which is A Forest. What's so important about this track and this song? Uh, I think it's the perfect cure song and it kind of endures this day as one of the centrepiece songs of their live shows that they play as an encore. And it's just spellbinding and it still sounds like something... It could have been recorded this morning. It's amazing. A 
Morris there from The Cure and with us in studio this evening on his way to see and hear The Cure at the Three Arena is Eamon Sweeney and I, I, we were saying even as that track started Eamon it's the bass really that mm. drives that, yeah. that. who was, yeah. who was in, at, at that point in the band because it's, it's been Robert Smith all along but there's all sorts of kind of it's a changing yeah. it's a moving feast really apart it's from a that, moving it? feast and it's kind of hard to keep up uh, the, 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 the original Three Imaginary Boys was Smith Michael Dempsey and Law Talhurst Law Talhurst was in and out of the band for, for, mm. for so long time. Now, they're talismanic bass player who came uh, a little bit later and again has been in and out is Simon Gallup. He's amazing mm. live. The last time I saw The Cure would have been Robert Smith's Meltdown in um, 2018. And by the way, that's a festival in London. It wasn't actually Robert Smith's yeah, literal yeah, yeah. Meltdown. <laughs> uh, he was the curator. Um, and he is a fantastic player. Now, he claimed on a Facebook post last year that he'd left the band that he was sick of betrayal, which sounds all very gossip, yeah. very drama. But he's back in the fold. Like, he's been playing this European tour. Now, yeah, it, re- it remains to be seen when he's going to make it, make an appearance tonight. But he is such an important part of the band live. And, as well and as the record. I mean, that track in on the original version is nearly six minutes long, um, and that's a studio version. Are yeah. you expecting to hear it tonight? Are you expecting to hear six minutes or more? Or much more, 10 minutes plus. Because uh, like the live versions, like they did, they're fir- they've done six live albums, yeah, <laughs> as much, you know, and a plethora of compilations and EPs. And also, it's worth mentioning, and they're not really given, I think, enough credit for this. They released a remix album called Mixed Up. This was years before remixing and dance culture had mm. really infiltra- infiltrated the, the the mainstream. So they really deserve a lot of credit for trying out lots of different things. And really, I don't think until Radiohead came along that any other British band was being quite as audacious as The Cure. And when we say The Cure, you know, you you were saying about how difficult it is actually to keep tabs on who's actually in the band. Mm -hmm. Are we really talking about Robert Smith? Is it his vision? Is it his music? Is that what is the driving force and has been the driving force since the 1970s? Pretty much, pretty much. He writes all the lyrics. He writes the bulk of the songs. We collaborate with whatever other musicians are available. People have compared him a bit like his his namesake, Marky Smith, Mm. uh, Mm. Late of the Fall of this revolving door kind of thing. And I suppose the famous Marky Smith thing, if, it, if it's me and your granny on, on bongos, it's a fall gig. So if it's Robert Smith and anybody, it's a cure gig. Yeah. Um, but what's interesting about, for a guy who, hit the, 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 the life of the band is so unstable and so chaotic. His personal life, so stable. He's married to Mary Poole, who he met at the age of 14. Probably one of the most enduring marriages in rock and roll. Uh, but Bono and Addy Houston actually would be yeah. another great example. But for all that teenage angst and all that kind of, that, oh, yeah. that's the rock. Yeah, well, wait, I'll come back to the teenage angst because I know that's important. <laughs> but the the non teenager in me just loves the. It's it's a romance that is alive and well. When he's out on mm. tour, she changes her. Her day, her routine. Just explain what she does. This is it's, just a beautiful yeah, aspect of her, of her relationship. You don't hear about this kind of stuff every day. Um, um, Mary Poole, uh, or Mary Smith, um, she adjusts her sleeping pattern depending on where Robert is touring, uh, what time zone, so that they can synchronise their communication. Because even when, you know, they're not together or mm. she's not on tour with Robert, they speak for hours on the phone. So that really is true love. And that's something. Now, Robert Smith is now 63 years of age uh-huh. and he knows Mary since the age of 14. So talk about childhood sweethearts and enduring love 
And I think when, and Robert Smith is interesting, he's resisted doing his own autobiography or a lot of biographies about The Cure. Mm. For a band who are so big, there's not many very good books about them. And I think that is something that really in the future people look back on when they analyse what made up, what made Robert Smith tick. Of course, they were part of the MTV generation and that's possibly where the visuals and the Mm -hmm. the, the goth side of it, as you say, the teenage angst is all over the songs anyway. But that visual aspect of of the goth culture MTV kind of magnified that, Absolutely. Didn't it? Like, talk about good timing. Really, as The Cure were getting huge, MTV was getting getting huge. So this was this perfect vehicle and platform for them to really express what their aesthetic was about. And they also collaborated, you know, and still collaborate with Tim Pope, who was the director mm. of most of their videos. Yeah, I suppose Lullaby would be uh, would be the one that would spring to mind in yeah. terms of just a, what are we looking at when we're looking at Lullaby because we listen to the song. We're looking at, I suppose, kind of the Spider-Man having me for dinner tonight and that kind of just being, you know, dramatised as Robert Smith being being eaten by a spider. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, nothing more goth than that, is Pretty there? Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> Let's listen to what that sounds like. Not at all goth, of course, <laughs> Robert. You're absolutely right. It's it's new romance. That's oh, right. absolutely. <laughs> that is uh, Lullaby from The Cure. I mean, three great songs that you give us for anybody even starting out to listen uh-huh. to The Cure. You listen to Ted 15 Saturday night, you listen to A Forest, and certainly you listen to Lullaby and watch the video and yeah. you're you're right there in the midst of it. But for the non-Cure head, for the, the total novice, just give us your starting point again and what they should do. Uh, Standing on a Beach, the singles, and things like We Haven't Spoken About Boys Don't Cry, We Haven't Spoken About Close To Me, um, The Love Cats, which I think is kind of a wedding DJ uh, staple. So they have this huge, well, not audience, but certainly a knowledge and appreciation of their pop music. Friday, I'm, Alo- I'm In Love, which is another mm-hmm. one. Now, Cure fans would probably be a bit similar to R.E.M. fans, their attitude to shiny, happy people. They might be a little bit, oh, Friday, I'm In Love, that's a bit naff and corny, but... Um, it's a good place you know, to start. Or it is one, a good one of the good start. starters. And they're, they're a great pop band as well as being whatever about the gothic alternative stuff and the atmospheric stuff. They also reams of good pop tunes. Oh, all right. So, and you're heading off to the three arena now immediately. Obviously, um, you're going to do the hair before you go. Yes. I was very disappointed that it wasn't in goth style when you came in to see me in the studio. Sorry about that. Um, I think I'm still kind of like, I did attempt to try, I won't name. My accomplice, so he, so in case you never speak to me again. But I remember we're going to uh, one of these kind of playback parties for the Entreat album back in '92 or something, and uh, trying to badly apply makeup and just giving up. And he kind of suggested, "How about we try pseudo cream and kind of have this kind of creative way?" We looked ridiculous. We're walking to the venue. People are laughing at us in the street, and I will never forget the mortification of really stylish got girls, just laughing at us yeah. as who are these absolute clowns so um, that's that was the end of my Cure Head style days <laughs> her style is anyway Eamon thanks a million for coming into us and enjoy the gig tonight I'm looking forward to seeing the selfie of the hairdo sometime <laughs> over the next couple of days Eamon Sweeney running out the door to the Three Arena to see the Cure live giving us some suggestions on where to begin with the Cure 
51551 is the text. You can twi- tweet the programme at RTE Arena. Violent Night finds Santa Claus focused to save Christmas by any means necessary. The documentary How to Tell a Secret reveals the truth about living with HIV. And North Circular is a musical odyssey around along Dublin's North Circular Road. With me to discuss this week's films are Deirdre Malumby and Chris Wasser. And let us start with... Violent night. I'm not sure where to go with this one. Uh, you have Die Hard, I suppose. You have Krampus. You have Bad Santa. This growing trend of anti-Christmas, gringy type of movies seems to be um, becoming more and more prevalent. Violent Night is certainly in that category. Stars David Harbour as a cynical Santa Claus who's lost faith in mankind. It opens on Christmas Eve, this film, Deirdre with a kind of a festive scenario. And if you've watched Die Hard or if you're a fan of Bruce Willis, you'll kind of recognise the scenario that they start out with here, Deirdre. Oh, absolutely. Violent Night makes absolutely no secret of the fact that it is Die Hard if Santa were placed in the shoes of John McLean, I suppose. Because um, synopsis-wise, we're looking at a group of mercenaries who have decided to attack the estate of a very wealthy family. Um, they intend on breaking into their vault, stealing hundreds of thousands of dollars. But little do they realise that Santa Claus, who is there to visit um, the granddaughter uh, Trudy and leave off her gifts, he just happens to be visiting when this group of mercenaries decide to uh, launch their um, attack on this house. So, yeah, it's all very it's all very well and good and very mm. silly. And yeah, it's Santa Claus, unlike you've seen him before. He is not jolly, but rather cynical and jaded and uh, a bit worse for wear and not completely sober in this rendition, <laughs> in this edition of uh, Jolly Old Santa. Yeah, um, uh, David Harbour, Chris, playing the Santa Claus character here, David Harbour of Stranger Things, I yeah. think people will know him from the, that television series is he good casting for this particular type of Santa Claus yeah I think so actually I thought the, the casting is tremendous here certainly for David Harbour playing Santa because if you're going to make a film about a grumpy disillusioned cynical you know Santa who's handy with his fist and who'll stick up for the little guy and who'll try and save Christmas for the little girl of the pieces this is um, you know there's no better man than David Harbour because he's been playing this sort of character in Stranger Things and he can do that lovable you know affable bruiser shtick in his sleep at this stage and he is hmm. the kind of you know he's the he's the shining light in this film I should say the, the 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 prologue where we get to actually see him stopping off. He's in between shifts. He actually takes a break in the first few minutes of this film and has a has a point for himself in a pub in Bristol. And there's this wonderful little scene, which is the only really wonderful scene of the film, where he's having a point. He's clearly actually maybe had a few before then. And the manager of the pub thinks, you know, he's just another shopping centre Santa. <laughs> but then they have a conversation yeah. about who actually does the work on Christmas Eve. And let's listen to where that conversation goes. Another one. Well, it's still vertical, so I'd like to change that. Bit of pine. You just get off. I'm taking a break between shifts, I guess you could say. You ain't driving, are you? I steer a little, but the reindeer do most of the work. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. 
So that is the type of conversation that takes place between the real Santa Claus and the Santa Claus who might be uh, standing in for him in the shopping malls around the the various locations in the world. Um, Chris saying to me here as we're we're listening to that, that that's probably the funniest scene in the movie. Yeah, and actually uh, what immediately follows that scene is the publican goes outside, Santa's left, and she looks up in wonder as Santa is uh, flying above her in the sky. She can't believe what she's seeing, and then she's immediately vomited on. So that gives you a kind of idea of uh, where this movie is going in terms of that gross-out toilet humour. Do expect to have a reindeer poop joke in there one or two as well so for me the humor didn't entirely work in this film and when it comes to us following you know this dysfunctional family it's the sort of thing that we've really seen a hundred times before and I didn't really find the dynamic between the members quite as funny as I wanted or expected it to be there are some funny moments but a lot of the humor fell flat Um, for me the movie was definitely much more solid and much more entertaining when it got into the actual um, action moments and the set pieces which I actually thought were quite good just give us a a little bit Chris if you would of the dynamic of the 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 family who are being kind of hounded by these mercenaries to steal their money effectively effectively Effectively, yeah, they're these horrible rich people, uh, you know, the kind of these one percenters who live in this gaudy McMansion in the middle of God knows where in America. And they never really, they're called the Lightstone family. And even though we know that the matriarch played by uh, Beverly D'Angelo, uh, their mum's name is actually Gertrude. Even though we know that they're billionaires and they have their own company, we're never really sure what exactly that company does. Mm. But they've all got it on Christmas Eve. The eldest son played by Alex Hassel, he is clearly got, he's clearly got something to say to his mum. And he's also trying to patch his family back together his wife and his daughter have joined them but you know things aren't great in his relationship with his wife there um, he also has to put up with his idiot obnoxious sister played by Edie Patterson and her kind of you know toy boy wannabe movie star uh, uh, other partner and then their son who's just a bit of an insta Um so nobody in this room you know getting ready for their Christmas dinner in this McMansion nobody really likes each yeah. other and they're all getting ready for what should be a dinner of just you know incessant infighting and they are then interrupted by John Leguizamo and his mercenaries who say you know for no reason for no apparent reason whatsoever we're here to steal 300 million dollars where is it all right so that then it does fit in with that that introduction i was saying was a kind of a heist anti-christmas type of movie but there still is a naughty list and i think there still is a nice list there is and there seems to be a nice kind of relationship that builds if i have it right between trudy lightstone played by leah brady and the Santa Claus character, because effectively they have to work hard to save Christmas. And that has to be done every year, as we know. Let's have a listen to an interaction between Leah Brady and David Harbour as Santa Claus. Hello? Santa? Yeah, this is Santa. Daddy said you were very busy tonight. I'm on a break. Who, who am I speaking to? My name is Judy Lightstone. And I've been very good this year. I'm in a big room with all my relatives. There's two bad men with guns watching us. Better get you out of there. Take all these bad guys on my naughty list. I'm gonna take a lump of coal. Each and every one of them and shove it. Straight up the ass. Well, I mean, come on, Trudy. We want to keep you on the nice list, you know. Sorry, can I say butthole then? I mean, it's borderline. 
Yeah, it really is borderline. Um, that's Leah Brady as Trudy Lightstone there and David Harbour as Santa Claus. And uh, Deirdre, it's it's delightful to hear that with a little bit of motivation, Santa Claus is back at what he does best, giving people what they want on Christmas Eve evening into Christmas morning. Yeah, and seeing Santa as an action movie star, I suppose, if that is something that you've always had mm. on your uh, wish list. Like I was saying before, I actually quite liked the um, action in this uh, movie. It is kind of hitting all of those familiar diehard beats. And actually, what's quite sweet about the relationship between uh, Santa and Trudy is that Trudy is to Santa as the police sergeant was to John McClane. They have walkie talkies in which they're talking to one another and they do like develop this like really kind of yeah. sweet and touching relationship and they have some lovely conversations. Uh, but the action set pieces in this are quite a bit of fun. There's some impressive like fight choreography in there and they're making use of the Christmas decorations and other every day props are kind of integrated mm. into the action. There's a showdown in the games room involving a pool table and Christmas tree lights, which I won't give away all of the uh, steps of, but there is right. quite a bit of fun okay. in there. So that is where I kind of enjoyed the okay. movie. Okay, so stars, most, stars from you on it, Deirdre. I'm going to give it three stars. I am in a holiday mood. I'm feeling a bit generous, um, but it is very bloody, very silly, full of cursing. It does let itself off the hook an awful lot. It is yeah. fun, but you'll want to have the stomach first. Yeah, and I'm <laughs> guessing it's probably not family viewing. Uh, and and no. you're, you're, no. I, I don't know if it's bad humbug that you are across the table from me or not, Chris, no, or whether I, it's just that you, you just don't like this version of Santi. I just, I think try hard, you know, if it's 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 die hard with Santa, but try harder. You know, there are three big problems this film one is that the comedy is just so reliant on excessive and repetitive and nonsensical profanity mm. it I swear as much as you want lads make sure it has some sort of impact though it's just it's just you know f you you f for this you know, it, yeah, it's, yeah. it doesn't really make any sense two the action I'd have to sadly disagree with Deirdre I thought it was quite messy and gory and unnecessarily so and three we're supposed to be rooting for this family for Santa to save the family but at no point other than the little girl does the film Do make an argument for the older okay. members of the family we kind of want to see them be robbed three so it's points, a, is it getting as many stars I think it's a little bit of a mess I think poor David Harbour actually deserves better because there is good casting here but it's a, it's just it's no great ideas it has no great ideas of its own unfortunately so it's two stars two from Chris okay mixed bag there so let's move on to um, the first of two documentaries we're speaking about this evening this one called How to Tell a Secret directed by Anna Rogers and Sean Dunn and based on Sean Dunn's play um, yeah, of Rapids called Rapids How to Tell a Secret this is all about, uh, Chris, the, uh, how to disclose a HIV diagnosis and, and particular emphasis on what it meant in Ireland, what it means rather in Ireland, where the virus is still largely sig- stigmatised. It still is largely stigmatised and there is a little bit of shame around the, the, mm. uh, the, the, the HIV conversation. So the, the, the goal and the central conceit of this film by Sean Dunn and by Alan Rogers is to remove that shame and to remove that stigma and also to give a voice to people who maybe haven't had a chance to tell their own stories before. Now this is actually a film which is based on a play which is based on a theatre performance by Sean Dunn and Anna Rogers who's a documentary filmmaker uh, she said that she approached Sean Dunn mm-hmm. after she saw this play and thought about adapting it for the cinema and I must say because I actually hadn't seen Rapids when I first heard about what this film might involve that you know it was going to defy genre that it was going to combine traditional documentary with abstract performance personal storytelling with poetic monologues I did start to think to myself this sounds more like a continuation of a the- the- theatrical experiment you know maybe this would work a little bit better on stage this sounds a little bit like an art Mm. installation almost 
I think it's wonderful then to be proven so wrong and to actually come right. across what turns out to be a very powerful, rich examination okay. that is best experienced on the screen, that's best experienced right. in the cinema. That sounds very positive. Uh, where does uh, Robbie uh, Lawler fit into all of this uh, particular story, uh, Deirdre? Yeah, so it's really Sean Dunn, um, who is one of the directors. And uh, like we were saying, he wrote the original play based on this. And Robbie Lawler, who are really the two who are the most prominent. They're kind of the faces of um, those who are living with HIV, because so many of the personal accounts we hear in this film and personal stories have been kept anonymous. And how they go about uh, telling these stories is that there are a group of actors who reenact them. So what's interesting about this film is that it really doesn't shy away from its um, theatrical origins and it integrates, I suppose, what could be described as uh, performance art all through its running. We hear these accounts and rather seeing the faces behind them. These actors are like speaking them out to stage or to the camera or we see them kind of acting out. Mm. Um, So it's kind of a really interesting like interpretation of it. And actually, I think that the film does quite readily acknowledge that there is this difficulty between encouraging disclosure but also respecting the privacy of um, the anonymity of these people. And Robbie Lawler actually is quite open in the fact that he wants to respect the fact that these people um, who speak to him very openly want to be anonymous about HIV, but he is also trying to be at the forefront, fighting for them to be recognised, fighting for them to be respected. And that's very difficult when they, you know, want to be kept kind of invisible. So he talks about how the epidemic isn't really HIV, but it's actually um, silence. And the documentary calls for more community support. It calls for more education. And I really have to say it is so, so enlightening. And I learned so, so much watching this film. Let's listen to a a part of the film trailer, an edited version, in fact, which opens with the voice of Sean Dunn. And then you'll hear Robbie Lawler. And within this mix as well, you'll hear a clip of Robbie, uh, Robbie, rather, Robbie Lawler being interviewed by Tommy Tiernan. I'm in a restaurant off O'Connell Street. I'm the last one he has to meet. He walks in, he sits across from me. He says, this is the worst thing you could ever hear from an ex. So many people in Ireland are silent about their status because society has silenced us. Hello there, everybody, and you're all very welcome to another episode of the show. Your semen is dangerous. This is the good news okay. that I've been holding off to now. This is the pinnacle of the day. My HIV affects no one. Where's the education skill? It's nowhere. Secrets are personal, aren't they? Powerful, too. And in the wrong hands, a secret can become a weapon. So maybe sometimes it's best to keep them to yourself. But sickness. We don't have to be in a closet anymore. We're going to change this country for the thousands of us living HIV out there. We're taking a stand. We're stuck in this cycle of shame and silence, and we need to break out of it. So a very uh, an edited section there of the trailer for the documentary film How to Tell a Secret. And Chris, I mean, Deirdre touched on it there. The, that's striking the balance between respecting people's privacy and yet this is a topic that needs to be opened up and spoken about and a secret that needs to be shared or that it, it's probably better if it's shared. Did the filmmakers handle that very fine line? How do they tread it? <laughs> 
They do. And also, Shandon sort of invites you into uh, this uh, work in progress method where you're, you're seeing people interviewed or you're seeing the performers, you know, in, in, in a rehearsal room before the performing pieces are, are performing pieces are filmed. Mm. And they're talking about the fact that it is important to be respectful of the people and their stories. They're talking to the people who are reclaiming their stories for the first time and self-representing themselves, as they put it here, and saying that, you know, if at any point you feel uncomfortable, you just let us know. This is where a camera is going to be. There's going to be one behind, there's going to be one in front. So the people who were approached to, you know, tell their own stories in this film, they are hopefully made to feel as though, you know, they can, yeah. they can, they're doing it on their terms. Uh, I'm going to briefly, Matt, tell us how Vida and, and Tom McGinty, the Dice Man, how, yeah, I how like that this. story and that story is told in the film. By I like Vida. this a lot, actually, because uh, Ender McGrath and Vida, uh, uh, people will know Ender McGrath as, as a drag artist, Vida, um, they provide a, an invaluable lyrical contribution here. Uh, they uh, kept their HIV status uh, a secret for a decade and they actually reclaimed their story by penning a song which they actually perform in full in this film and as part of this project as well they wanted to pay tribute to Tom McGinty aka the Dice, Dice Man, Man yeah. who was you know as you know a very famous actor street performer in 1980s Ireland was a huge advocate for gay rights and also was interviewed on the Late Late Show a couple of times about his about their uh, uh, HIV status and they died in 1995 at the age of 42 so as a tribute to this uh, iconic uh, street performer Ender McGrattan uh, designs with, it, with another designer a replica outfit and takes to the streets of Grafton Street right. and also uh, again oh, you know going back to that theatrical setup uh, reenacts uh, uh, Tom McGinty's before, or, yeah, you know interview on the Lately Show hugely theatrical man in and of uh, himself was, yeah. was Tom alright stars from you on this one Chris I thought it's it, I think Anna Rogers and Sean Dunn they had a hell of a balancing act on their hands mm. here but the way that the theatrical setup is merged with traditional documentary and quite complex documentary at times is actually seamless I thought it was beautifully made it's quite informative educational yeah. engaging um, there's never been a project Stars. like this 4 out of 5 <laughs> 4 out of 5 what are you saying Deirdre? Yeah, this presented um, its subject matters just from uh, such a variety of angles that I never would have thought of. And there are some really strong and beautiful visuals in it, a consistent message of empathy and understanding, which really I was just so overwhelmed and moved by at times. Um, I've been thinking about it a lot ever since seeing um, How to Tell the Secret. So it's a four star movie. Four for star me. From, from you as well. Let us move on then to our final film for this evening and another documentary uh, filmed in black and white and has been described as a musical documentary that travels the length of the eponymous Dublin North Circular Road from Phoenix Park to Dublin Port Eponymous since the film is called North Circular. Um, it, it, Luke McManus is the director here. What approach does he take to telling the story of Dublin's North Circular Road, Deirdre? I mean, for me, the prominent theme and something that just co uh, kept coming up over and over again with what uh, Luke McManus was kind of trying to communicate with this documentary was the idea of privilege versus poverty. Mm. So, for example, one of the earlier scenes that we see in the film are the men playing cricket and uh, horseback riding around a Phoenix Park. And it's really just a matter of a couple of scenes or a few minutes later that we see these children playing in the derelict remains of where the flats were torn down. Then there's another sequence um, that's kind of evident of this later on where uh, we follow a Croke Park match and we see the many droves of people who attend the game, like going in all, you know, cheering and yeah. excited. But the camera very pointedly stays outside the stadium where the local 
vehicles are just kind of walking around, you know, they're being disrupted by all the noises coming from the park, but they kind of have to, you know, um, shut it out and, you know, ignore the fact that they can't participate. And then we see all the masses, you know, exiting Croke Park and looking all very jovial naturally. And I think what Luke McManus does really quite beautifully um, in integrating Mm. music throughout is what he's saying that music is this bridge. It's this form of connection that transgresses class and wealth. And he really has some incredible uh, musical participants in this movie. Gemma Dunleavy was really a uh, standout for me, but you also have uh, John Francis Flynn, Sean Otuma and Owen Okeanawan. Um, Some beautiful, beautiful music in this film. And where does the whole campaign to save the cobblestone pub in in Stone, well in Smithfield, where does this fit into the story? Because it's an important part of it, Chris. It is an important part, and for me, it's 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 the centerpiece of this film. That uh, you know, halfway through, because the performances, the folk performances that we're seeing from John Francis Flynn, from Lisa O'Neill, they actually take place inside the cobblestone. So the film is kind of telling you this is the heart of it. Uh, it Luke McManus was actually saying in an interview recently that it was not. They were nine months into production when the cobblestone, I suppose, the, the cobblestone drama, to call it that, kicked off, where you had this, uh, uh, you know, all of a sudden notice put up that the cobblestone was going to close, that it was going to be replaced by a hotel. And obviously the people who run it, the locals, the musicians, mm. artists, neighbours, everyone just banded together and the protest like no other was staged to save the cobblestone. It was saved and you then have this portion of the film which hones in on that, which teaches us a little bit about the pub's history and, you know, its importance, not just to, you know, the locals, but to musicians. But as you're saying there, you, you were talking, there's that cobblestone story, there's the poverty versus privilege yes. story and then there's the story of the road, the North Circular Road itself and all of those music performances. That's a lot to pack into a film. It's a lot to pack in and it, if, if, it feels like such a shame to, 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 to be critical of this film because it is beautifully made and it looks the part and, and the storytelling involved and the history and heritage and it's such a personal project for McManus and you can see the amount of work yeah. that's gone into it. I think I just would have preferred, I think there is a terrific 60 minute feature maybe to be made about what happened at the cobblestone because we're getting a very broad overview of what happened there and also in other times when, you know, when the film touches on institutionalization and incarceration and the people that it meets along the way because it almost plays out like this cinematic walking tour yeah. we're just getting bits and pieces so there, it's, it's, there is a sense that maybe there's a bit too much being bit off here right. and that you know it might have been better focused had it just picked one or two of those stars from you Chris I, I, I liked it a lot it's beautifully made the music especially is, is, is impressive but yeah I just I had some issues with it so All three right. stars three stars from you and what are you saying uh, uh, briefly Deirdre yeah, I mean, I think that it is maybe a little unfocused and it took on an awful lot. I do think that there are some lovely scenes in this and you meet some absolutely right. great personalities. There's this homeless man that plays the tin whistle. Sure. There's this really, um, there are several like heart-rendering stories in there. So it is definitely worth checking and out. Stars? Um, I'm going to give it three and a half stars. Three and a half from Georgia. So that is uh, the third of our films, North Circular. We also spoke about the pre- previous documentary, How to Tell a Secret, and the, the blockbuster hype version of Violent Night, the story of Santa Claus told differently. Chris Wasser and Deirdre Malumbi are reviewers on this Thursday evening.